I'm going to jump right in. But who here has ever driven in a storm? A couple people. You know those storms where you're driving and you literally can't see through the windshield, right? Where it's just like, it's pouring rain and it's just blurry and you have no idea what you're going to do. I remember as a kid being in the car when this happens and just being like, this is it. I'm going to die. Like, this is my moment to be with Jesus because of rain. Um, this is it. And I, in those moments, it really is terrifying, because it's like, there's all these cars, it's, it's dark maybe, it's storming, you can't see anything, and you're literally like driving by faith at this point, right? It's like, not, I'm not driving by sight, I'm driving by faith at this point. And uh, as silly as that is, I, I want us to take this and apply this, because the reality is a lot of us may not think we have a broken view of God, but if your view of God is blurred, it's just as skewed. You may not have a view of God that says, oh man, God is like this horrible, oppressive deity. You may not have like a broken view of God, but if your view of God is not clear, your view of God is just as skewed. So you say, pastor, how do I know my view of God is skewed? Well, how do you see him when you worship? Like we were going in for 30 minutes there. <laughs> how did you see him? Because it's not about how expressive you are. Anyone can fake that. Come on. Anyone can be loud. Anyone can be passionate. But in your heart, how did you see him? Let's go to Revelation chapter 5, verse 11 to 14. I want to take you guys somewhere. Who loves the book of Revelation? Dang, there's a lot of people. That Revelation isn't all about end times and dragons and all that stuff. It's about the beauty of Jesus. And uh, I did this practice one time when I was studying Revelation, and I wrote down every single song that was sung to Jesus. Every single thing that was released about Jesus, I wrote it down in my journal, and I just started meditating on it. I started declaring it back to Jesus, and it really it awakened my heart to actually worship him. It awakened my heart to actually see him. And so Revelation chapter 5, let's just read this real quick, verse 11 uh, to 14. It says this, then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. Okay, they weren't whispering. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb. Say worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen. Say amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So I want to ask us this question. Why does our worship on earth look different than worship in heaven? You ever thought about this? Why does our worship on earth look different than worship in heaven? And I would say it's because we lack a revelation of his value. Why Revelation, in the book of Revelation, why we see this glimpse of heaven and, and all these crazy things happening and angels are circling the throne and they're worshiping and elders are throwing down their crowns and they're 
proclaiming in a loud voice, declaring how beautiful and worthy Jesus is. That the difference of why they're doing that and we're not is because we don't understand his value. We don't understand how valuable Jesus actually is. And what's interesting, because you're like, well, Andrew, that's in heaven. Like, you know, it's all weird there, so it makes sense. But what's interesting is that they're worshiping the lamb. Do you know that's the same revelation you have about Jesus? <laughs> that they're worshiping the lamb who was slain. They're worshiping the God who became flesh and died and suffered and resurrected for you. That's the God that they're worshiping. They're not worshiping, man, this supernatural being that's just like created the heavens and the earth. They're worshiping the sacrificial lamb. They have the same revelation you do, but they see his value. And so when we sing, you are worthy, what we're doing is we're ascribing worth and value to Jesus. We're saying, Jesus, you are worth more than anything else in my life. Jesus, you hold more value than any other relationship, than any other success, than any other comfort. You hold the most value. That's what happens, and that's what we're declaring when we say, you are worthy. And that's when we have to come and say, do we actually believe what we're saying? Do we actually believe Jesus is worthy, or are we just conditioned to say it? And so let's jump to Matthew 13, 44. This is where we're going to frame this sermon. Jesus gives a parable of the kingdom, and he says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure, say treasure, hidden in a field, say field, which a man found and covered it up, then in his joy, say joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. So today's sermon is called The Treasure and the Field. The Treasure and the Field. Before we go on, I want to break down what the kingdom is because Jesus is giving this parable, okay? And he's showing that the kingdom, God's kingdom is so valuable that it's worth selling and getting rid of and, and laying everything down for this thing. So we have to understand what this thing actually is. The kingdom, by definition, is wherever God rules and reigns. That's the kingdom, right? It's the king's domain. That in the gospel, Jesus has this there's this verse, and he says, the reason that I was sent, this is the reason I was sent. For Jesus to say that, that's very significant. Jesus says, the reason I was sent was to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. He said, I came on earth, and obviously there's a lot of reasons Jesus came, but one of his, his motivations and his, his mission was to proclaim that there is a different kingdom that is coming and that has already come. Right, the now and the not yet. That the kingdom is a present reality. If you've received Jesus, you are in his kingdom. It's a present reality, but there's also a future hope. Right, That there's going to be a moment where God's kingdom is going to fully materialize and every tear is going to be wiped away. Every illness is going to be healed. Right, That there's not going to be any weeping. It's only going to be rejoicing. But in the now, because you have the spirit of God in you, you can release the kingdom on the earth. Paul says in one of his epistles that the Holy Spirit is a down payment for all that we're going to receive. And I don't know how much the kingdom is, but a down payment of that is still a lot. 
Colossians 1.13, I love this verse. It says this, for he has rescued us. Has anyone been rescued in the room? Come on. You can be more excited about that. Anyone been rescued in the room? Hey, there we go. All right. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his son. Who knows that there is only two kingdoms? You're either in one or the other. (laughs) You're either in the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of his son. And what's so interesting, I want us to see this. The story of the people of Israel, we know uh, that they were held captives in Egypt. And for generations, they were slaves. All they knew for generation was that grandma was a slave, mom was a slave, I'm a slave, that we're under the kingdom of Pharaoh, right? We're being oppressed by this tyrant ruler, that we're forced to work, and, and we're just, just, just being abused, and we're captured, that we're stuck in this lifestyle, and this is all we know, right? So they were under this one kingdom. And when God led them out of Egypt, right, with Moses, he, he led them out of that kingdom. You guys tracking? He led them out of that kingdom, and his desire was to establish a new kingdom. It says in Scripture that he made a covenant with Israel to make them a kingdom of priests, that he came to establish a new kingdom. But what's so interesting, if you actually read your Bible, the story of the people of Israel is that it took them decades took them generations to get to where God was taking them. Why? Because for generations, they were slaves. And all they knew how to do and how to be was to be in captivity. They didn't know how to rest. They didn't know how to trust God. They didn't know how to be dependent on someone else that wasn't themselves. All they knew was I have to fend for myself and I have to fight my way to survive. But God says, in my kingdom, you're in the kingdom of the son. You're under Jesus' rule and reign. And under his rule and reign, you are actually free. And this is why Paul says that we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, by unlearning the patterns of this world. Because we're so used to one kingdom that when we've been rescued, we have to actually unlearn what it looked like to be in captivity and now to be in freedom. And when we understand this, (laughs) this is why Jesus says, this kingdom is worth selling everything joyfully to get. Because it's in this kingdom that you're actually going to be free. It's in this kingdom you don't have to strive to be loved and accepted. It's in this kingdom that you don't have to force yourself to be holy because God through his spirit is going to do the work in you if you abide in him. This is the kingdom that we have been invited and rescued out of into. And I don't know what your story is if you've, you know, had a super intense upbringing and you've, you've overcome a lot of intense struggles, or maybe your story is, I believe in Jesus, I've been good ever since, but I want you to know that every single one of us, if you believe in Jesus, we have the same testimony, and our testimony all has the same weight, (laughs) that we were once in the kingdom of darkness, and we've been rescued from that, and we've been grafted, we've been invited, we've been brought into the kingdom of Jesus, every single one of us has that same 
testimony. So the first thing I want to talk about today is the treasure. The treasure. The treasure, as we see in Matthew, is the kingdom. But I want to frame it that the treasure is the kingdom, but specifically the treasure is Jesus. Because who knows, wherever the kingdom is, so is the king. (laughs) Wherever the king is, so is the kingdom. Because wherever he is, so does his rule and reign come. And so in the parable, the treasure is Jesus. And I want us to see this, that what satisfies you ends up becoming what you value. What satisfies you is what you start to value, whether good or bad. And if you don't value Jesus, it's because you are not being satisfied by him. When I was younger, I had this quote that I had a sticky noted on my bed, next to my bed, and I would read it every day when I woke up. And uh, it's a quote by Piper, and I'm not a crazy Piper person, but this quote is so, so good. He says this, God is the most glorified in you when you are the most satisfied in him. That God's glory is released from your life. That God overflows out of you when you are the most satisfied in him. And I think the problem is a lot of us are trying to glorify God. And a lot of us are trying, man, I want my worship to be expressive. Like that's maybe your goal. You come in here and you see these people and you're like, man, they're so free and so expressive. And maybe your goal is, man, I want to worship like them, which is not a bad desire. But the root here isn't what you do out. It's what happens in. And the reality is that you have to be satisfied in God. Because otherwise, you're just inviting someone into a fake relationship. Ooh. Imagine, imagine there's this girl you like. <laughs> you're like, yeah, this is my girlfriend. Never spent time with her. Yeah, like we, she really likes me. Don't even know her middle name. And you tell someone, hey, meet my girlfriend. <laughs> That's how some of us look. Can I convict you guys this morning? Okay. Give me permission. The God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. When you see his value, when the windshield is clear, you are willing to give up everything you have to attain him. And I'll be honest with you guys, sacrifice is hard. <laughs> it's taxing, it's, it's inconvenient. There's things that God's like, Andrew, you got to do this. I'm like, I don't want to do that. Jesus, I don't want to do that. I'll pray. I'm like, God, can you just make it happen without me? Right? Has anyone been there? God, I don't want to confront this person. That sacrifice is hard. But who knows, when you are in love, you're willing to give anything up to be with the one you love. When you are in love with someone, I'm in love with my wife, and there's things I don't want to do. I don't want to take out the trash. I don't want to do the dishes. Come on. But when you love someone, you're willing to give some things up. Otherwise, it's not love. Do you guys want to know the first time love? Do you guys know the first time love was used in Scripture? The context? You think it's in the Garden of Eden, 
Adam's walking the cool of the day. It's like, I love this flower. You think that's it, maybe? Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's Jesus, for God's love the world. But the first time love is used in Scripture is when Abraham had to sacrifice his son. <laughs> that was the first time love was used in Scripture. And what's so interesting, because this story is insane. Like, it's mind-blowing to me. It's like you wait your whole life to finally have a kid. God miraculously gives you a kid through a miracle that this is the promise of God that you've been waiting for. And it's finally fulfilled. You live with him for a couple years. This is my son playing catch, you know, having fun. And God's like, hey, I need you to do this one thing. And obviously, you know the story, right? It was God was testing him. But what's so powerful was Abraham's response as he did it. He's like, here, Isaac, carry the wood. (laughs) Right? It's kind of awkward. (laughs) Be an awkward walk home, right? You're like, Dad, you just try to kill me. (laughs) But what's so interesting, why Abraham was able to do this was because God was more valuable than his promise. God was more valuable than his son. (laughs) And it doesn't mean that he didn't value Isaac. He loved Isaac. The first context of love was used in this story. But the thing was, because he loved God so much more, he was willing to sacrifice what he thought was important. That sacrifice is the fruit of love. Love is not the fruit of sacrifice. That if I only love you because you sacrifice for me, that's not love. That's conditional. But if I love you, if love becomes birth out of sacrifice, man, I'm going to give myself up for my wife. Like this is my person. This is who I'm in covenant with. I'm going to give myself. I'm going to lay myself down. may not do it perfectly every time. But from that place, love is birthed. And so for a lot of us, God has called you to do uncomfortable things. Some of you are called to go to nations that you don't want to go to. Some of you are called to minister to people you don't want to minister to you. God is calling you to forgive people that you don't want to forgive. But God is saying, hey, if you love me, you're willing to sell everything to buy the field, to get the treasure. The Matthew 6 21 says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Where, whatever it is that you value, that's where your heart is going to be. That your heart is consumed by what you value. That a value system, by definition, are a set of individual values which reveal the degree of personal importance. That your value system reveals what is the most important thing to you. So what is your value system? Is it, I just got to, you know, get all, get all A's? Do you, get, do you get A's in college? Is that a thing? It's like points, right? Or I got to get like 900 points. I don't know. I'm in college. I got to, you know, get a relationship, ring by spring. <laughs> that we have this value system, whether you realize it or not. And this is what happens. When we meet Jesus, our priorities change. When you, when you get into a marriage, <laughs> come on, married people, 
Come on, testify. Right? Your priorities change. When you have kids, your priorities change. Why? Not because, oh, I have to do this, but because you're in love. Colossians 1.18 says this, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. He is first in everything. But if we don't see the value of Jesus and place Jesus at the first place, then our whole value system gets thrown off. If Jesus isn't first, then your whole value system gets thrown off. If Jesus is second, your whole value system gets thrown off. You're like, the things that you're supposed to actually value, you kind of value. You're like, I'll kind of value going to church. I'll kind of value spending time with the Lord. I'll kind of value prayer. And the things that aren't as important, we start to value. So when sat on their phone and watched Instagram Reels for two hours, I know you guys have, because I have. Right, it reveals what you value. That if we don't see the value of Jesus, our whole value system is thrown up because everything flows from the head. Everything flows from top down. And so what happens is in turn, we start to value. What we start to value becomes distorted. We spend time and give attention to the wrong things. We pursue the wrong goals. We satisfy ourselves with temporary things. That you can go 30 years in your Christian life and still not do what God has called you to do. But if he becomes the first thing, right? If you seek first, what? The kingdom and the king, he's in there. Everything else will be added. Can I drop a nugget on you guys? You know, there's a difference between a treasure and an idol. A treasure is something that already has value. You, you, you want the treasure because it already has value. It's already valuable. But an idol is something you have to give value. <laughs> you have to give it worth, right? Worship. You have to give it worth. And this is what's interesting. The people of Israel, they, they were rescued from captivity. They get the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up to the mountain. He comes down, and they did what? They worship the golden calf. And you're like, man, why do they do that? That's, that's dumb, right? But why they did that was because that's all they did. <laughs> they worshiped idols in Egypt. That's what they're used to. That's what they're accustomed to. This is, this is just what we know. This is what grandma did. <laughs> right? She worshiped a, a golden something. <laughs> and so like, th- this is just what they knew. But, but who knows? An idol doesn't have any value. You give it value. But God is saying, hey, when you see this treasure, you don't have to add anything to it. You don't have to, you don't have to give it value because it already is valuable. And you know how exhausting it is to have to constantly give value to something? That there's idols in our life that we're just like, we're addicted to. 
And it's, this, it's exhausting. You know what I'm saying. It's exhausting because you're constantly having to give it value. But the beauty of Jesus is he's already the most valuable thing. All you have to do is see it. The Revelation 2, 3 to 4, this, this verse marked my life. To give you guys some context, Jesus is speaking to the church of Ephesus. And the church of Ephesus, right, we have the book of Ephesians, which was Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus. We know that Paul lived with these people, right? Paul was their pastor for a season. It's pretty epic. Right? They were taught the gospel. They, they had amazing theology. They had good doctrine. They endured persecution. Like, this is a pretty good church, right? Revelation 2, 3 to 4 says this. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name. That's pretty good. You have not grown weary. It's pretty good. But then he says this, yet I hold this against you. Imagine Jesus said, hey, you've done all these things right, but I hold this thing against you. This is what he says. You have forsaken the love you had at first. That you had really good theology, who knows, you can have really good theology but be really messed up. You can have airtight doctrine and post-trib, pre-trib, whatever, but you can still fall <laughs> and live in sin. That you can endure, you can come to church every week and say, I'm not going to. I'm not going to walk away from Jesus. You can endure. But Jesus says, through it all, you have forgotten. You have forsaken. The, the word forsaken, the root word, actually means divorce. <laughs> you have divorced yourself from the love you had at first. That you can do all these things right, but still miss him. You can do all these things right, but still be driving with a blurry windshield. That I know all these amazing things about Jesus and God worked in my life, but do you actually love him? Like, is he your first love? Is he your, your primary love? Is he the main thing that satisfies you? Is he who you give the most attention to? Because sacrifice becomes an overflow of love. It's a fruit of love. And if we are not following and worshiping and studying from love, then we're just worshiping an idol. So that's the treasure. And now I want to talk about the field. Can we talk about the field? All right. Let's read Matthew 13, 44 again. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Okay, so we talked about the treasure. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. That the field is also important because without the field, you can't have the treasure. That without a doubt, every single one of us wants the treasure. You're like, okay, I hear you. I get it. Jesus is the most valuable thing. We want the treasure. If you follow God, I don't doubt that one bit. You want the treasure. But are you aware of the cost of the field to get the treasure? 
that the field then is the place of sacrifice. It's the place where you have to lay things down. It's, it's the place that God is a part of that you have to sacrifice to have more of him. That in 2 Samuel 24, if you guys want to go there, 2 Samuel 24 to 24 to 25, to give you guys some context. This is King David. And King David right, has this army and, and he has a, a census to count how many people he has. And, and he does this out of a place of control. Because he's like, I want to make sure we have like, as many people as possible. I want to make sure we have a full army. But God tells him not to do it, but he does it anyways. Because he puts his faith right, in, in the army. He puts his faith in his, in his strength rather than God. And what ends up happening is because of King David's sin, right? remember, everything top, flows from top down, from the head to the bottom. Because of his sin, Israel was punished. So all these... God gave him a choice. He's like, all right, which punishment do you want for your people? And so he chooses these plagues. And David's just distraught. He's like, man, why did I do this? Right? All these people are dying. And the Lord tells him, go into this specific place, buy this field, buy this land, and build an altar. And in this altar, bring a sacrifice, and the plagues will stop. So this is the context. And he gets to the field, and the, the person that owns the land, he's like, well, you're the king. Just take it. It's yours. Take my field. Take my oxen. Whatever you want, it's yours. And he's going to give it to David for free. But then in 2 Samuel 24, 24, says this, but the king replied to Arana, no, I insist. I want you to listen to this. This is David. He says, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. That I will not give God something that costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayers in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. But who knows that grace is free. Grace is freely given. All of us are saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no man may boast. You are freely given the grace of God. Grace is free, but worship will cost you. We think of the picture of the woman who poured the alabaster jar on Jesus' feet. It cost her something. It says it was worth a year's wages, year's wages right? I don't know the... The annual income of Lynchburg, right? Maybe 40, 50K, 60K. But it's, it's as if you were to just spill out, just waste something worth 60K on Jesus' feet for just one moment of worship. And Jesus says, wherever the gospel is preached, you'll be remembered. Let that hit you. The grace is free, but worship will cost you something. Why? Why is that the case? Because the price you're willing to pay for something reveals its value. The price you're willing to pay for something reveals that you value it. And so in the story, David purchases a field, but specifically a threshing floor. Right? This, this idea and this, this, this picture of a threshing floor is used throughout Scripture. And a threshing floor, to give you guys some context, a threshing floor in scripture is a place of separation and revelation. A place where the harvest was prepared by separating the grain from the useless straw for the purpose of exposing and collecting the most valuable part of the crop. 
So to give you guys a picture, we might have a picture, but it's almost like this part of the land, there we go, where they throw in the harvest. And in the harvest, you know, you can't really pick everything individually. And so there's the grain and sometimes there's, there's, right, just, there's just wheat and grass. And they, they get these oxen and they, they go in a circle on the threshing floor and they stomp out all the things. And at the end, once everything is pressed down, you can separate what is valuable and what is not valuable. This is where David brought the sacrifice. That the field reveals what holds real value in our lives, right? It's a place of separation, that every single one of us has a field. It's a place of sanctification and sacrifice, but it's the place that results in increase and in intimacy with Jesus, that there are things that God is a part of, that you already have Jesus, but there's a deeper level of intimacy that says, Jesus, I want to be a part of wherever you're a part of, That for some of us, your trials are a field. Your current trial is a field. Your family is a field. Your church is a field. Your quiet time is a field. Your relationships are a field. Your calling is a field. That these are the things you have to pay a price for, but in return reaps a reward. So I want to tell you today, church, buy the field. That Jesus is worthy. He is the most valuable treasure you will ever gain. That in Matthew 13, it says, the person joyfully sold all that he had to buy the field because the treasure was hidden in it. Who knows that joy isn't a feeling, it's a perspective. You think joy is a feeling. Joy can manifest as a feeling, but joy is not a feeling. It's a perspective. It says in Scripture that Jesus said that there, or said about Jesus that there was a joy set before him that allowed him to endure the field, to endure the cross, right, the place, the trial. That it was, it was joy that allowed him to endure that suffering. And that joy was us. We were what was on the other side of the cross that Jesus was so joyful to endure to see that his people can now be brought into right relationship with him. This was the joy. This was the perspective. So in the same way, when we see these things in our life, that's like, man, this is, this is going to push me. This is going to require sacrifice. This is going to be, be very sanctifying. But I know in the middle of it, Jesus is in the field. The treasure is in the field. And because, like we just talked about, the value of Jesus, the perspective that you have of how valuable Jesus is, then joyfully you can lay it down. That's the perspective that says Jesus is my first love and takes the first place in my life, no matter the cost. The worship team, you guys can come up. In the end, in Philippians 3, 7 to 8, it says this. I once thought these things were valuable. This is Paul. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. Christ. 